Welcome to Berlin. No tour of Germany is complete without a look at its historic and reunited capital, Berlin. Once war-torn and divided, Berlin has emerged as one of Europe's top destinations, captivating, historic, fun-loving, and constantly evolving. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Thanks for joining me on a walk through the historic heart of Berlin. We start at the Reichstag, pass through the Brandenburg Gate, saunter down Unter den Linden Boulevard, and finish at Alexanderplatz. Along the way, we'll trace Berlin's 500-year history as Germany's cultural capital. We'll see the grandiose monuments of Prussia's emperors. We'll see the sober reminders of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi era. We'll walk the path where the Berlin Wall once stood and learn about life under communist rule. Allow two to three hours for this two-and-a-half-mile walk. It's a great introduction to the sites you may want to explore further later on. Or, if you only have one day in Berlin, this walk shows you the core of the city and its most important sites. We'll see how this city, leveled in World War II, divided by the Cold War, and torn up by Reconstruction, has now been reborn in the 21st century. It's the heartbeat of modern Germany. Berlin. To help us along the way, I've invited a good friend and virtual travel buddy. Welcome, Lisa. Guten Tag, Herr Steves. Lisa will give us helpful directions and sightseeing tips throughout the tour. And my first tip is to be sure you get our tour updates. Just press the icon at the lower right of your device. You'll find any updates and helpful instructions unique to this tour. Things like closures, opening hours, and reservation requirements. There's also tips on how to use this audio tour and even the full printed script. Yes, so pause for just a moment right now to review our updates and special tips. It's okay. We'll wait. And then, let the tour begin. The tour begins. The Reichstag. Start your walk directly in front of the Reichstag building at the big park called Platz der Republik. It's at the U-Bahn stop called Bundestag. Dominating the Platz der Republik is a giant domed building, the Reichstag, Stand about 100 yards from the Grand Reichstag and take in your surroundings. Rick? Thanks, Lisa. The Reichstag is the heart of Germany's government. It's where the Bundestag, the lower house of Germany's parliament, meets to govern the nation, similar to the U.S. House of Representatives. Berlin has always been Germany's capital, whatever the form of government, from the first Dukes of Brandenburg in medieval times to the kings and emperors of Prussia, the Weimar Republic, Hitler and the Nazis, communist East Germany, and on to the democracy of today. Think of the history this Reichstag has seen. When the building was inaugurated in 1895, Germany was still a kingdom, ruled by the Hohenzollern family that had reigned here for nearly 500 years. Back then, the Reichstag was far from the real center of power. That was a mile east of here at the Royal Palace. Kaiser Wilhelm II disdainfully called this place the Reichsaffenhaus, the chatting house for monkeys. But after the emperor was deposed in World War I, the German Republic was proclaimed right on this spot. Look above the door to see the promise they carved into the facade, dem Deutschen Volk, to the German people. That first democracy, known as the Weimar Republic, proved weak. Meanwhile, the storm of National Socialism was growing, the Nazis. 
Soon the Reichstag had dozens of duly elected national socialists, and eventually Adolf Hitler seized power. Then in 1933, the Reichstag building caught fire and nearly burned down. Do they know how that happened? Well, no one's 100% sure. The Nazis blamed the communists. Many believe it was a setup and that Hitler himself had planned the fire as an excuse to frame the communists and grab power for himself. Whatever happened, it worked. With Hitler as Fuhrer and real democracy a thing of the past, the Reichstag was hardly used. But it remained a powerful symbol. That's why, after Hitler led Germany into World War II, the Reichstag was a prime target for Allied bombers. It survived, but you can still see the bomb damage. Look close at the inscription above the door and notice the stone patches where they repaired it. As World War II wound down and Soviet troops advanced on the city, it was here, at the Reichstag, that 1,500 German troops made their last stand before Berlin fell. After the war, Berlin was divided into east and west. The Berlin Wall ran right behind the Reichstag. The Reichstag, now in a kind of no-man's land, fell into disuse as the West German capital was moved from Berlin to the remote city of Bonn, further west. But now, the wall is gone. Right. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 and Germany was reunited, the Reichstag once again became the focus of the new nation. It was renovated by British architect Norman Foster, who added the glass dome or cupola. In 1999, the new Reichstag was reopened and the parliament reconvened. To many Germans, the proud resurrection of their Reichstag symbolizes the end of a terrible chapter in their country's history. Look now at the modern dome. The Reichstag's dome rises 155 feet above the ground. Inside the dome, a cone of 360 mirrors reflect natural light into the legislative chamber below. Lit from inside after dark, this gives Berlin a memorable nightlight. The environmentally friendly cone with an opening at the top also helps with air circulation, expelling stale air from the legislative chamber and pulling in fresh cool air from above. You can go inside the Reichstag, but you need to make a reservation. Then you can climb the spiral ramp all the way to the top of the dome for a grand city view. But our tour is moving on. Yes, but before leaving, let's check out some sites near the Reichstag. To the left of the Reichstag, at the Bundestag U-Bahn stop, you'll see a big federal building. Beyond that, in the distance, is the tower of the huge main train station, the Hauptbahnhof. The tower is marked DB for Deutsche Bahn, the German rail company. Further left is the mammoth white concrete and glass chancellery. The structure is nicknamed the washing machine by Berliners for its hygienic spin cycle appearance. It's the office of Germany's most powerful person, the Chancellor. To remind the Chancellor who he or she works for, Germany's Reichstag housing the Parliament is about six feet taller than the Chancellery building itself. Now, face the Reichstag and start walking toward the right corner of the building. You're headed toward a memorial. It's a memorial that marks the moment when the Reichstag and its democracy came up against Adolf Hitler and the rising tide of fascism. The monument is low-key. Keep an eye out for a line of stones embedded in the Platz der Republik. It looks a bit like a bike rack. In reality, it's a row of slate stones sticking out of the ground. This is the memorial to politicians who opposed Hitler.
the row of 96 slabs remembers the 96 members of the Reichstag who were persecuted and murdered because their politics didn't agree with Chancellor Hitler's. Each slate slab memorializes one man. You'll see his name and political party. Notice that most are KPD, communists, and SPD, social democrats. There's also the date and location of his death. The KZ is for those who died in concentration camps. These courageous politicians are honored here, in front of the building in which they worked. This memorial is only the first of several we'll see on this walk. Berlin is a city with a troubled past, and its citizens remember that with moving monuments. Let's go see some now. Lisa? Our next stop is Brandenburg Gate, located about 200 yards to the right of the Reichstag. But along the way, Rick will point a few things out. Start by walking along the right side of the Reichstag on busy Scheidemannstrasse toward the rear of the building. As you walk along Scheidemannstrasse, think about the transition from the Nazi years to the next dark chapter in Berlin's history, communism. At the end of World War II, Hitler was defeated and the city was bombed and essentially destroyed. That's a theme we'll encounter time and again on this walk. In 1945, the western half of Berlin was liberated by the U.S. and the other allies. Meanwhile, the eastern half of the city fell under the control of the Russian-dominated Soviet Union. We're approaching the line where the city was split in two. When you reach the intersection at the back of the Reichstag, turn right and cross busy Scheidmannstrasse. With the traffic, it may take a moment or two to get there. Don't worry. We'll wait for you. At the corner of Scheidmannstrasse and Ebertstrasse, on the right side, you'll see a small monument. Head for that spot. So once you reach the other side, start walking south down Ebertstrasse along the right side of the street. After just a few steps on the right, you'll see a row of white crosses. Pause at the crosses and consider the division of Berlin and the physical barrier that once stood in the middle, the Berlin Wall. Ebertstrasse, the Berlin Wall. As you walk down Ebertstrasse, you're tracing the course of where the Berlin Wall once stood. The row of white crosses along the railing is the Berlin Wall Victims Memorial. It commemorates some of the East Berliners who died trying to cross the wall. During the wall's 28 years, 136 people were killed at the wall while trying to escape. Notice that the last person killed while trying to escape was 20-year-old Chris Geffroy. He died a mere nine months before the wall fell in 1989. He was shot through the heart just a few meters away in no man's land. Continue along Ebertstrasse toward the Brandenburg Gate. The Berlin Wall was erected in 1961. While the wall is long gone, you can see memorial bricks in the pavement indicating where it once stood. It was put up by the Soviet-dominated communist government of East Germany. It formed a 96-mile-long barrier circling the entire area of West Berlin. It stood between the Soviet-controlled East and the U.S.-leaning West. 
Its purpose was to stop the outward flow of people from east to west. Some three million freedom-hungry East Germans had leaked out between 1949 and 1961. The wall, or mauer, was actually two walls. The outer was a 12-foot-high concrete barrier topped with barbed wire and a rounded pipe-like surface to discourage grappling hooks. Sandwiched between the walls was a no-man's land, or death strip, between 30 and 160 feet wide. More than a hundred sentry towers kept a close eye on the wall. On their way into the death strip, would-be escapees would trip a silent alarm which alerted sharpshooters. According to documents, border guards fired a total of nearly 1,700 times and made 3,000 arrests. There were about 5,000 documented successful escapes. 565 of those were East German guards. Ebertstrasse spills into a busy intersection dominated by the imposing Brandenburg Gate. The Brandenburg Gate The Brandenburg Gate is a massive, classical-looking monument crowned with a four-horse chariot. It's the grandest and last survivor of the 14 gates in Berlin's Old City Wall. This one led to the neighboring city of Brandenburg. The gate was the symbol of Prussian-controlled Berlin. The majestic chariot on top is driven by the goddess of peace. When Napoleon conquered Prussia in 1806, he took this statue back with him to the Louvre in Paris. Then, after the Prussians defeated Napoleon, they got it back. That was in 1813. And the goddess of peace was renamed the goddess of victory. These days, the Brandenburg Gate is arguably the symbol of Berlin. The gate straddles the major east-west axis of the city. The western segment behind you stretches four miles running through Tiergarten Park to the Olympic Stadium. To the east, the street is called Unter den Linden. That's where we're headed. In the distance, the red and white spire of the TV tower marks the end of this walk. Now let's cross the busy street. Again, noticing the cobblestones marking where the Berlin Wall once stood. Let's take a closer look at the Brandenburg Gate. From 1961 to 1989, the Brandenburg Gate was the symbolic dividing point between East and West Berlin. You see, after World War II, the four victorious allies, the British, French, Americans, and Russian Soviets, divvied up the city into administrative zones. The American-leaning free-market city of West Berlin was on this side of the Brandenburg Gate. On the other was Soviet-controlled communist East Berlin. In short order, the paranoid Soviets started closing off free passage. First came a blockade of West Berlin that had to be broken by flying-in supplies in the Berlin Airlift of 1949. Then came the Berlin Wall in 1961. Barbed wire and armed guards made sure no one crossed the wall without official permission upon pain of death. For an entire generation, countless German families were divided, some on this side of the wall, some on the other. The Berlin Wall was the most potent symbol of the larger Cold War between East and West. American presidents traveled here to Berlin to show their solidarity with the West. President Kennedy gave a speech near here declaring, Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a Berliner. President Reagan stood directly in front of the Brandenburg Gate and demanded of his Soviet counterpart, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. 
By the 1980s, it was becoming clear that the once mighty Soviet empire was slowly crumbling from within. Resistance grew, but no one could have predicted what happened next. Almost out of the blue, the ecstatic moment arrived, November 9, 1989. The world rejoiced at the sight of happy Berliners standing atop the wall. They chipped away at it with hammers, passed beers to their long-lost cousins on the other side, and adorned the Brandenburg Gate like flowers on a parade float. To everyone's surprise, the wall came down. Eventually, it was physically dismantled, and Berliners east and west could now enjoy total freedom. Let's walk through the gate. You're now free to enter what for years was forbidden territory. If you're interested, there's a small room inside the gate on the left, the Room of Silence, dedicated to silent prayer and meditation on the cost of freedom. Also around the gate, there are information boards with pictures of how this area changed throughout the 20th century. And there's a small tourist office within the gate. As you pass through the gate, you enter former East Berlin. Pass all the way through the gate. You emerge into a grand square known as Pariserplatz. Stand in the middle and scan the sights. Pariserplatz. Pariserplatz marks the start of Unter den Linden, the broad boulevard that stretches before you. Parisian Square was so named after the Prussians defeated France and Napoleon in 1813. The square was once filled with important governmental buildings, but all were bombed to smithereens in World War II. For decades, it was an unrecognizable, deserted no-man's land, cut off from both east and west by the wall. But now it's rebuilt, and the banks and hotels that were here before the bombing have reclaimed their original places, with a few modern additions. And the winners of World War II, the United States, France, Great Britain, and Russia, enjoy this prime real estate. Their embassies are all on or near the square. To your right is the U.S. Embassy. The embassy reopened here in its original location in 2008. The building has been controversial. For safety's sake, Uncle Sam wanted more of a security zone around the building. But the Germans wanted to keep Pariserplatz a welcoming people zone. The compromise? The extra security the U.S. wanted is built into the structure. Easy-on-the-eyes barriers keep potential car bombs at a distance, and its front door is actually on the back side of the building, farthest from the Brandenburg Gate. Check out some of the other buildings facing the square. Further ahead on the right is the DZ Bank building. It's worth stepping into the bank's lobby to see the striking modern atrium. Good idea. Let's go there now. The architect, Frank Gehry, is famous for Bilbao's Guggenheim Museum, Prague's Dancing House, Seattle's Experience Music Project, Chicago's Millennium Park, and the Walt Disney Concert Hall in L.A. Gehry fans who enjoy his attention-grabbing forms and colors might be surprised at the bank building's low-profile exterior. Structures on Pariserplatz are designed so as not to draw attention away from the Brandenburg Gate. But check out the lobby. This gives you your fix of wild and colorful Geary. Built in 2001 as an office complex and conference center, the building's undulating interior is like a big, slithery fish. Geary once explained, The form of the fish is the best example of movement. 
I try to capture this movement in my buildings. For more of Architect Frank Geary's vision, read the plaque in the lobby near the fish. Now let's start making our way back outside, returning to Pariserplatz. The next building on the square is the Academy of Arts. More on that in a second. But for now, turn your attention to the following building, the one that juts into the square and overlooks Unter den Linden Boulevard. This is the Ritzy Hotel Adlon. The original hotel was demolished after World War II and rebuilt in 1997. Over the years, this venerable place has hosted celebrities and VIPs, from Charlie Chaplin to Albert Einstein. Wasn't it here that Michael Jackson... Yes, yes, exactly. It was here that pop star Michael Jackson shocked millions by dangling his baby over the railing. It was the second balcony up. And the Hotel Atlon was the setting for the classic film Grand Hotel, in which Greta Garbo uttered the immortal line, I want to be alone. And I say, I want to move along. Because our tour must continue. At this point, we'll be making a detour off the main Unter den Linden access to see some sobering World War II memorials. We'll return to the Hotel Adlon in a bit. To get to the memorials, leave Pariserplatz by passing through the Academy of Arts building. That's the one between the DZ Bank and Hotel Adlon. So, let's enter the Academy of Arts building. By the way, if the Academy of Arts is closed, you'll need to make a five-minute detour. Pause the audio guide and follow this route. Walk to the left toward the Hotel Adlon. Circle around the Hotel Adlon to its backside. There you'll find our next stop, the sprawling field of stubby concrete pillars. This is the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe. That's track six. But if the Academy of Arts is open, let's head there. Enter the Academy of Arts building. Pass through the glassy arcade and start making your way to the back. By the way, there's a toilet in the basement if you need it. Just past the ground floor cafe is the former office of Albert Speer. Speer was Hitler's chosen architect, the man charged with planning the rebuilding of Berlin once the Nazis won the war. Berlin was to have been the grandiose world capital of Nazi Europe. Pass through the glass door to see Speer's favorite statue, Prometheus, from around 1900. This is the kind of art that turned Hitler on, a strong, soldierly, vital man defending the homeland. Now, continue walking through the Academy of Arts building to the back. By the way, about that Prometheus statue, anticipating the bombs, Speer had the statue bricked up in the basement beneath our feet, where it lay undiscovered until 1995. I can't help but think that statues like this would have been everywhere in Berlin on a walk like this if Hitler had won the war. Brr. Continue on through the building and exit out the back. As you exit, veer to the right. Cross the street, Berenstrasse. Before you stretches a sea of gray pillars, a vast memorial to the Holocaust. Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe This Holocaust memorial consists of 2,711 coffin-shaped pillars covering an entire city block. 
It remembers the six million Jews who were killed by the Nazis during World War II. Completed in 2005, it's an essential stop for any visit to Berlin. It was the first formal German government-sponsored Holocaust memorial. Using the word murdered in the title was intentional and a big deal. Germany as a nation was officially admitting to a crime. Jewish-American architect Peter Eisenman won the commission. Before getting too deep into the Forest of Pillars, an orientation note. When you've finished seeing it, you'll want to emerge at the far left corner of the memorial, beyond where the information center is. Now, start walking through. Once you enter the memorial, notice that people seem to appear and disappear between the columns, and that no matter where you are, the exit always seems to be up. The memorial is thoughtfully lit at night and guarded. The pillars are made of hollow concrete. They stand in a gently sunken area, which can be entered from any side. The number of pillars isn't symbolic of anything. It's simply how many fit on the provided land. The memorial's location, where the wall once stood, is also coincidental. In Berlin alone, there were 160,000 Jewish residents before Hitler took power. Tens of thousands fled the Nazi regime, and many thousands more were arrested, sent to nearby Sachsenhausen concentration camp, and eventually killed, murdered. Make your way to the far left corner. Along the way, you'll find an information center. Inside, the exhibits trace the rise of Nazism and how it led to World War II. Six portraits representing the six million Jewish victims look out, putting a human face on the staggering numbers. You'll see diaries, letters, and final farewells penned by Holocaust victims. A continually running soundtrack recites victims' names. To read them all would take more than six and a half years. The meaning of the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe is open to interpretation. Is it a symbolic cemetery full of gravestones, or an intentionally disorienting labyrinth? Like death, you enter it alone. It's up to the visitor to derive the meaning while pondering this horrible chapter in human history. You eventually emerge on the street corner. It's a little beyond the information center. Phew, that was intense. Well, stay focused. Our next stop is also pretty sobering. The next stop is about a block away. Cross Hannah Arendtstrasse and walk south down Gertrude Kolmarstrasse. Stay on the left side of the street. You'll pass alongside a rough parking lot. Keep walking with an eye out for an information plaque. This plaque marks the spot of Hitler's bunker. The Site of Hitler's Bunker While there's nothing to actually see, you're standing atop the buried remains of the Führer bunker. In early 1945, as Allied armies advanced on Berlin and Nazi Germany lay in ruins, Hitler and his staff retreated to this bunker complex behind the former Reich Chancellery. He stayed here for two months. Meanwhile, Berlin had been laid to waste by Allied bombing. Over the course of the war, the city was pummeled time and again by U.S. and British airplanes. Tens of thousands of Berliners lost their lives, and hundreds of thousands were forced to evacuate to the countryside. 
And so it was here on April 30th, 1945, as the Soviet army tightened its noose on the Nazi capital, that Hitler and Eva Braun, his wife of less than 48 hours, committed suicide. A week later, the war in Europe was over. The information board here explains the rest of the story. It shows a detailed cutaway illustration of the bunker complex. A timeline traces its history and ultimate fate. After the war, the roof was removed and the bunker filled with dirt, then covered over. Though the site of Hitler's bunker is historic and certainly thought-provoking, there really isn't much to see here, and that's on purpose. Okay, then let's return to Unter den Linden, and you can talk about Hitler along the way. Start backtracking up Gertrude Kolmarstrasse. When you reach Hannah Arendtstrasse, turn right, then take your first left on Wilhelmstrasse, then keep going straight. Whoa, and... whoa, whoa, okay. I think I'm losing you. Okay. But don't worry, I'll be there to give directions as we go. Wilhelmstrasse. Hitler and World War II. First, remember Lisa's directions. To get back to Unter den Linden, the first step is, when you reach Hanna Arendtstrasse, to turn right. As you walk, realize that this neighborhood was heavily bombed during World War II and virtually nothing historic remains. Why doesn't the German government mark important historical sites like Hitler's bunker? Well, no one wants to turn Hitler's final stronghold into a tourist attraction. Germans tread lightly on their past. There's an understandable concern about stoking the fires of neo-Nazism, which never seems to die. For example, it took 65 years for the German History Museum to organize its first exhibit on the life of Hitler. Even then, the exhibit was careful not to give neo-Nazis any excuse to celebrate. Even the size of the Hitler portraits was kept to a minimum. Excuse me, bitte, Ricard. Some important directions. As you walk along Hannah Arendtstrasse, be ready. You'll turn left at the next block. That's left on Wilhelmstrasse. The image of Hitler has been changing in Germany. No longer is he exclusively an evil mass murderer. He's been portrayed in films as a nervous wreck, and even made into a wax figure at Berlin's Madame Tussauds. Remember, Turn left on Wilhelmstrasse and continue on while I talk until you're back on Unter den Linden. 21st century Germans still treat the subject of Hitler with extraordinary sensitivity. Here's just one example. You've probably heard the quote, If I tell a big enough lie and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. That phrase comes from Hitler himself, from his well-known political manifesto, Mein Kampf, or My Struggle. And if you did a quick internet search, you could find that quote as well as the full text of Mein Kampf. Copies of Mein Kampf are available from publishers and book outlets all around the world. But in Germany, it's a different story. In fact, the Bavarian state government still won't officially allow anyone to publish Hitler's bestseller. Here's another example of how modern Germans deal with Hitler's legacy. If you visit Hitler's mountain retreat in Berchtesgarten, south of Munich, the visit always includes an obligatory stop at the Nazi Documentation Center. That's where visitors see Nazi artifacts carefully placed in their historical context, and Germans can learn from their past. 
German educators are required to teach the lessons of history by taking school kids on field trips to see the remnants of concentration camps. But when it comes to Hitler memorabilia, there's a distinct shortage. Many visitors to Berlin are curious about Hitler sites, but few artifacts of that difficult period survive. It's a balancing act, remembering Hitler without glorifying the memory. When it comes to Der Führer, Germans have been careful when confronting their regrettable history. Continue up Wilhelmstrasse. You'll eventually enter a pedestrian part of Wilhelmstrasse. Keep going as you make your way back to Unter den Linden and Hotel Adlon. Wilhelmstrasse was the center of the German government back when Germany united in the 19th century. When the Nazis took power, this street was where Hitler waved to his adoring fans and where Joseph Goebbels had his Ministry of Propaganda. The street also housed various foreign embassies, like the British Embassy, which will pass on the left. You'll pass alongside the British Embassy. The purple color, by the way, is the color you get when you mix the red, white, and blue of the Union Jack all together. Keep going. As you continue toward Unter den Linden, Rick will explain what happened to that embassy when Hitler arrived. When World War II broke out, the British closed this embassy. As the war progressed, it was from Wilhelmstrasse that Hitler ordered the Blitz, the air raids that destroyed London. By the war's end, the British were returning the favor. Because Wilhelmstrasse was the nerve center of the German government during the war, it was bombed heavily by the Allies. Most of the stately palaces along here were destroyed. After the war, it made no sense to rebuild here, and the German government offices moved elsewhere. The British embassy was relocated to the city of Bonn, the new capital of the West German government. But when the seat of government returned to Berlin, Wilhelmstrasse was completely modernized. The rebuilt British embassy is just one of nearly 150 embassies in the globalized city that is today's capital of Germany. But I'm getting a bit ahead of the story. For that, we need to get back to Unter den Linden. And here we are. You eventually emerge back on Unter den Linden. Stand in the median to get a view down this big boulevard. Unter den Linden Unter den Linden is the heart of Imperial Germany. During Berlin's Golden Age in the 1800s, this street was one of Europe's grand boulevards, the Champs-Élysées of Berlin. It was lined with linden trees, so as you promenaded down, you'd be walking Unter den Linden, under the linden trees. The street got its start in the 15th century as a way to connect the royal palace, a half mile down the road east of here, with the king's hunting grounds, today's big Tiergarten Park, out past the Brandenburg Gate. Over the centuries, aristocrats moved into this area so their palaces could be close to their kings. After World War II, this part of Berlin fell under Soviet influence. Unter den Linden was the main street of former East Berlin. Let's start by seeing some remnants of that era. We'll be heading east down Unter den Linden. First up, notice the S-Bahn station called Brandenburg Tor. Let's go down into it and check it out. Really? 
Yeah, we'll go down inside the S-Bahn station, walk a ways along the subway platform, and then emerge at the other end. Follow me. Jawohl, Comrade Steves. Let's go unter der Strasse. Sehr gut, mein Freund. Okay, you heard the man. So, here's the route. We'll head east down unter den Linden, but for the first 200 yards or so, we'll do it underground by walking through the S-Bahn station. So, find the entrance to the Brandenburger Tor S-Bahn station. It's a few steps to your left in front of the Adlon Hotel. Enter the station. Go down two flights of stairs. You'll reach the subway tracks. From there, start walking along the platform. We'll go about 200 yards before popping back up to the surface. Rick? All right. As you walk along the subway platform, notice how mid-20th century the station still looks. There's the original 1930s green tilework on the walls. Many old signs still have Unter den Linden written in the old Gothic lettering. For decades, the Brandenburger Tor S-Bahn station was unused. One of Berlin's ghost stations. You see, during the Cold War, most underground train tunnels were simply blocked at the border. But in order to make a little hard Western cash, the Eastern government allowed a few Western train lines to cut under East Berlin on their way to other Western destinations. The only catch was no one could get off while under East Berlin. For 28 years, stations like this were unused as Western trains slowly passed through and passengers saw only East German guards and lots of cobwebs. Then, in 1989, literally within days of the fall of the wall, these stations were reopened. Today, some still remain a time warp, looking much as they did when built back in 1931. Continue walking along the track. By the way, notice how the walls are lined with historic photos of the Reichstag through the ages. Keep walking and exit at the far end of the station. Climbing the stairs, you'll pop out at the Russian embassy's front yard. It's on the right-hand side of Unter den Linden. Belly up to the bars and look in. The Russian embassy was the first big post-war building project in East Berlin. It's built in the powerful, simplified, neoclassical style that Stalin liked. While not as important now as it was a few years ago, it's as imposing as ever. It flies the white, blue, and red flag of post-Soviet Russia. Find the hammer and sickle motif decorating the window frames, a reminder of the days when Russia was part of the USSR. Keep walking down Unter den Linden to the next intersection. This part of Unter den Linden has traditionally been its business section, embassies, banks, and so on. As we go along, the scene gets more cultural, the university, the opera, and so on. That was intentional. The German kings wanted to have culture closer to their palace, and that's where we're headed. They wanted to keep business farther away. As you continue strolling down Unter den Linden to the next intersection, enjoy a little bit of local music. Here's a piece written by C.P.E. Bach, the son of the more famous Johann Sebastian Bach. Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach moved to Berlin around 1740 to play harpsichord in a band organized by the music-loving King of Prussia, Frederick the Great. We'll see Frederick's statue in just a bit. Young Bach played, he composed, and he even wrote the definitive textbook on how to play the keyboard. 
The following piece is a well-known study in 16th notes. So let's hear the solfeggetto in C minor by C.P.E. Bach. Take it, Bach Jr. Ah, Bach, I couldn't have played it better myself. By now, you should be reaching the next intersection, where Unter den Linden meets Glinkastrasse. At Glinkastrasse, our next destination is a place called the Berlin Story. It's kitty corner to the left across the intersection. So to get there, cross to the left side of Unter den Linden. By the way, Lisa, that piece of music we just heard, the Sofigetto by C.P.E. Bach, is one I learned as a young piano student. It's one of many pieces Bach Jr. wrote during his three decades here in Berlin. Bach was only one of several well-known composers who lived here. They helped make Berlin arguably Europe's music capital in the 1750s, setting the stage for the rise of Vienna a generation later. Once you reach the other side of Unter den Linden, Turn right and continue heading east down Unter den Linden. Keep going till you reach number 40, home of a place called the Berlin Story. With all the layers of history there are in Berlin, from Prussians to Nazis to communists, the Berlin Story is a good place to sort it all out. The Berlin Story Bookstore and Museum is two shops side by side. On the left is a beefy little museum covering the main points of modern Berlin history, including a video about the wall. It offers a vivid swing through the tumultuous story of this city. They also sell interesting Cold War souvenirs. Next door on the right is a bookstore with just about the best range anywhere of English-language titles on Berlin. Now continue down Unter den Linden a few steps farther until you reach the intersection with Friedrichstrasse. Today, Unter den Linden is no longer a depressing Cold War cul-de-sac dead-ending at the Brandenburg Gate. Its original strolling café ambience has returned. Rick, it sure is nice walking Unter den Linden trees. Yes, I agree. These linden trees are also known in English as lime trees. Linden trees can live for centuries, but most of these trees are not that old. That's because in the 20th century, Hitler cut down many of the venerable trees, some of them 250 years old, and replaced them with Nazi flags. Popular discontent among Berliners, even Nazi Berliners, drove him to replant the trees. Pause when you reach the intersection with Friedrichstrasse. It's a good place to survey some of the features of modern Berlin.
Friedrichstrasse. You're standing at perhaps the most central crossroads in Berlin. And for several years, it'll be a mess as Berlin builds a new extension of its subway system. Check out the stop-and-go crosswalk lights for pedestrian traffic at this intersection. The jaunty green and red men date from the old East Berlin days. They're called Ampelmenschen, or light men. Even after the fall of the wall, these fun pedestrian stoplights proved so popular that residents waged a ten-year court battle to keep them from being replaced. Now, look down Friedrichstrasse. Before the war, this zone was the heart of cultural Berlin. In the Roaring Twenties, it was home to Anything Goes Nightlife and cabarets where entertainers like Marlena Dietrich performed. Since reunification, it's become home to supersized department stores and big-time hotels. They're trying to catch up to the glitz of Kurfürstendamstrasse, which throughout the Cold War was the main commercial boulevard of West Berlin. So far, Friedrichstrasse gets half the traffic as Kudam. Why is that? Well, locals complain that this area has no real daily life, no supermarkets, not much ethnic street food, and so on. No personality. Before moving on, you could consider detouring a block south to Gallery Lafayette Department Store. It has an amazing interior. Or stop into the VW Automobile Forum to check out the latest car models. It's just across the street, on the other side of Unter den Linden. But we'll head down Unter den Linden a few more blocks. When Herr Ampelmenschen tells you it's safe to go, continue walking again down Unter den Linden. Unter den Linden, Part 2, From Friedrichstrasse to Babelplatz This first stretch is likely a construction zone. Ever since the wall came down, Berlin's been reinventing itself. New construction is everywhere. All over Berlin, you'll see big, colorful water pipes running above ground. Wherever there's big construction projects, streets are laced with these drainage pipes. Berlin's high water table means that any new basement comes with lots of pumping out. After reunification, the West lost no time in trying to swallow up the East. Consequently, some have felt a wave of ostalgia. That's the play on words Germans use for the nostalgia toward the Ost, or East Berlin ways. A good example of that is the Ampelmenschen, a leftover from the East. At election time, a surprising number of voters from former East Berlin still opt for the extreme left party, which has ties to the bygone Communist Party. Some Aussies, that's impolite slang for Easterners, miss the security that came with communism. Some Vessies miss the subsidies given to people willing to live in West Berlin, so cut off from the rest of the Western world throughout the Cold War. But a generation later, the old East-West division has faded more and more into the background. Aussie-Vessi conflicts no longer dominate the city's political discourse. We're approaching a large equestrian statue in the middle of the boulevard. Atop the horse is the one guy from Berlin's early history that matters most, Frederick the Great. Frederick ruled as King of Prussia in the mid-1700s. He turned his capital, Berlin, into a world-class city. Prussia, 
like ancient Sparta, was all about its military. Voltaire famously said, whereas some states have an army, the Prussian army has a state. But Frederick the Great wanted Prussia to be not just a military power, but a cultural and intellectual leader as well. He was the ultimate enlightened despot, both a ruthless military tactician and a cultured lover of the arts. Old Fritz, as he was nicknamed, played the flute, spoke six languages, and counted Voltaire among his friends. Under Frederick's rule, Berlin became a wealthy and cosmopolitan city. Let's take a look at some of Frederick's legacy in nearby Babelplatz. Continue past the statue of Frederick the Great and veer right into the square called Babelplatz. Head for the center of the square. Keep walking, even as Rick babels on, until you find a glass window set into the pavement. Stand there in the center and survey the impressive buildings around you. Babelplatz, the square of the books. In Frederick's day, this square was the cultural center of his capital. In many ways, it still is. When you reach the center of the square, spin counterclockwise to take in the cultural sites, some of which date all the way back to Frederick's time. Start by looking across Unter den Linden. That's Humboldt University, one of Europe's greatest. Marx and Engels both studied here before going on to start the communist movement. Other distinguished alums include the Brothers Grimm, both of them, and more than two dozen Nobel Prize winners. Albert Einstein taught here until he fled Germany to join the faculty at Princeton in 1932. Today, used booksellers set up their tables in front of the venerable university. Now turn your attention to the left side of the square. Facing the square is the former state library. It has a long history and was funded by Frederick the Great. More recently, Vladimir Lenin studied law here during much of his exile from Russia. Bombed in World War II, the library was rebuilt in the original style only because Lenin studied here. By the way, inside on the second floor is a 1968 vintage stained glass window. It depicts Lenin's life's work with almost biblical reverence. Continue panning the square. Next to the library, the square is closed by one of Berlin's swankiest lodgings, Hotel de Rome, housed in a historic bank building. The round Catholic St. Hedwig's Church, nicknamed the upside-down teacup, is a statement of religious and cultural tolerance. The pragmatic Frederick the Great wanted to encourage the integration of Catholic Salesians after he annexed their region in 1742. And so the first Catholic church since the Reformation was built, under his rule, in Berlin. It's dedicated to St. Hedwig, the patron saint of Silesia, a region now shared by Germany, Poland, and the Czech Republic. Like all Catholic churches here in Berlin, St. Hedwig's is not on the street, but stuck in kind of a back lot, indicating inferiority to Protestant churches. Up next is the German state opera originally established in Frederick the Great's time. Over the centuries, it's been damaged and rebuilt. It was bombed in 1941, rebuilt to bolster German morale and to celebrate its centennial two years later in 1943, and then bombed again in 1945. 
All very impressive, but what's this glass window we're standing on? Ah, yes. Look down through the glass. The Room of Empty Bookshelves is a memorial to a notorious event that took place right here during the Nazi years. It was on this square in 1933 that staff and students from the university built a bonfire. Into the flames they threw 20,000 newly forbidden books. Books authored by the likes of Einstein, Hemingway, Freud, and T.S. Eliot. Overseeing it all was the Nazi propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels himself tossed books onto the fire. As the flames rose up, he declared, The era of extreme Jewish intellectualism has come to an end, and the German Revolution has again opened the way for the true essence of being German. Think of it. This square had been built by Frederick the Great to symbolize culture and enlightenment. Hitler purposely chose this square to thoroughly squash those ideals by burning all these books, dramatically signaling that the era of tolerance and openness was over. Hitler was establishing a new age of intolerance, where Germanness was correct and diversity was evil. A plaque nearby has a quote by the 19th century German poet Heinrich Heine. The Nazis despised Heine because, even though he converted to Christianity, he was born a Jew. His books were among those that went up in flames on this spot. Read Heine's prophetic quote, written in 1820. Where they burn books, in the end, they will also burn people. Return to Unter den Linden. Cross to the university side. As you're crossing Unter den Linden, notice which way the statue of Frederick is pointing. East. He's facing the epicenter of Prussian imperial power, where his royal palace once stood. We're now entering the stretch of Unter den Linden that best represents Berlin's glory days. Start heading once again down Unter den Linden, along the left side. Our next destination is a building that looks like a Greek temple, called the Neue Wacht. As you walk, enjoy a bit more music. Here is a piece called I Sleep, So to Dream by C.P.E. Bach. Unter den Linden Part 3 From Babelplatz to Museum Island Berlin in the 1800s After Frederick had established a strong united Prussian state, the German presence in Europe was on the rise. Berlin of the 1800s was graced with grand new buildings like those that line either side of this stretch of Unter den Linden. The style was neoclassical, structures that looked like Greek temples with columns and triangular pediments. One of the first and still finest is on the left, called the Neue Vaca. It's the Greek temple-like building set in the small park filled with chestnut trees. 
The Neue Wache, or New Guardhouse, was built in 1816 as just that, a fancy barracks for the bodyguards of the crown prince. By the way, the prince lived across the street in the neoclassical building just ahead. It's the one with four tall columns marking the doorway. Over the years, the Neue Wache has been transformed into a memorial for fallen warriors. Check out the pediment over the doorway. The goddess of victory stands in the center amid the chaos of war as soldiers fall. Now approach the Neue Wache and look inside. Each regime used it to honor their soldiers. The Nazis used it as a memorial for their war dead. In 1960, the communist authorities rededicated it to the victims of fascism. Then, after the wall fell in 1989, the structure was transformed again into a national memorial. Inside is a replica of the Katie Colvitt statue, Mother with Her Dead Son, surrounded by thought-provoking silence. It marks the tombs of Germany's unknown soldier and an unknown concentration camp victim. The inscription in front reads, To the Victims of War and Tyranny. The memorial, open to the sky, incorporates the elements, sunshine, rain, snow, falling on this modern-day Pieta. Continue down Unter den Linden and make your way to the bridge over the Spree River. As you walk, the next building you pass, on the left, is the pink yet formidable Zeughaus. Dating from the early 1700s, the Zeughaus is considered the oldest building on the boulevard. It's certainly one of the most beautiful done in the Baroque style. It was originally built as the Royal Arsenal, but by the 1800s it had become a military museum, showing off the emperor's weapons and war trophies. Today, it houses the excellent German History Museum. While we won't be stopping here, it's the best look at German history under one roof anywhere, and well worth a visit. But our walk's got some impressive history in store for us, too, and we're moving on. As you walk, let me say a few more things about that German history museum. You start in ancient times, back when Germany was a forbidden world of barbarians that preyed on the Romans. Around 800 AD, the Germanic people were loosely united and Christianized under Emperor Charlemagne. Charlemagne, Charles the Great, or in German, Karl der Grusse. The museum's collection of armor brings to life the Middle Ages. For nearly a thousand years, Germany was little more than a collection of tiny dukedoms warring with each other for petty power. The exhibits on Martin Luther show how he not only brought the Protestant faith, but he helped unite the Germans with a Bible translated into their common language. It wasn't until 1871, though, that a single flag flew over a united Germany, with Berlin as its capital. The museum covers the tumult of the 20th century with Nazi propaganda posters, a ghastly Nazi crematorium, and chunks of the Berlin Wall. Finally, the displays bring you right into the 21st century with Berlin once again the capital of a united Germany. But we're headed back in time to the very beginnings of Berlin's history. Continue along Unter den Linden as it crosses a bridge leading to Museum Island. The bridge, by the way, was designed by Karl Friedrich Schinkel. He's the man who designed the Neue Wache. Schinkel was also the designer of the warrior statues on this bridge. 
He also did many other Berlin buildings, including one we'll see just ahead. You'll soon reach the bridge. Stop here a while. Enjoy the lazy Spree River, the statues along the bridge, and the impressive buildings on either side. As you stand here and take in your surroundings, let Rick introduce you to the city's historic birthplace. Museum Island, Berlin's Historic Birthplace We're crossing the Spree River. Just ahead is an island in the middle of the Spree. This is where Berlin got its start. Berlin was born on that island in the Spree. The city started around the year 1200 as a humble marshy burg. The name Berlin may be derived from an old Slavic word for swamp. The location was ideal. The river brought commerce, and the island provided protection from attack. As the city grew, the island was always the place where the ruler's castle and residence was. Over the centuries, the residence expanded. In the 15th century, prince-electors of the Hohenzollern dynasty made Berlin their capital. Gradually, their territory spread and strengthened, becoming the powerful Kingdom of Prussia in 1701. Berlin became the leading city of Prussia. It was the center of the northern Germanic world long before there was a united Germany. The Prussian palace grew in magnificence to match the growing empire. The Prussian kings, later called emperors, built a splendid Baroque palace. It was called Stadtschloss. It was a huge complex, eventually topped at one end with a dome. Lisa, guess who designed the dome? Uh, could it have been our old friend Herr Schinkel? Sehr gut. For 200 years, from 1701 until 1918, that palace was the home of the Hohenzollern dynasty, the family that ruled Berlin and Prussia, and after 1871, a united Germany. So, where is it? It's gone. The palace had stood right over there, just past the bridge on the right-hand side of Unter den Linden. But in 1918, the emperor was deposed, and the palace was heavily bombed in World War II. The Soviets finished it off in 1950 by leveling the remains to the ground and replacing it with what they called a people's palace. In the 21st century, that communist building was in turn demolished, and now Berlin's Palace Square is a major construction zone. On the site of the former palace, Germany is building the Humboldt Forum, a huge public venue for museums, shops, galleries, and concert halls. When completed, its facade will likely look just like the facade of the original palace. Now, let's venture onto Museum Island. Get a closer look at the former palace site. It's on the right-hand side of the street. Then, turn your attention to the left side of the street. There's a spacious garden bordered on two sides by impressive buildings. Survey the grounds while Rick talks you through the various museums and sites on the island. The Museum Island Sites This island is filled with some of Berlin's most impressive museums. Let's get oriented. The island's big central square is called the Lustgarten. At the far end is the neoclassical building called the Altus Museum, and to the right is the imposing Berlin Cathedral with its green domes. These grandiose buildings represent the can-do spirit of Germany in the 1800s. 
Remember, before the 19th century, there was no Germany, just a collection of 39 little German-speaking countries, Bavaria, Saxony, the lands along the Rhine, and so on. The mightiest of these was Prussia, with its capital right here on this island. What united these people was their common language and historic roots. In the 1800s, a movement was coalescing. Its goal? To unite all those little German-speaking states into a single modern nation. Economically, German iron and coal output multiplied, and trade was booming. Finally, in 1871, Germany united, and Berlin was its capital. These buildings, in the neoclassical style, represented German optimism, creating a new Germanic Athens. The earliest building, the Altus Museum, or Old Museum, went up in the 1820s. It was designed by... Let me guess, could it be Schinkel? Sehr gut. How did you know? The rest of the complex began taking shape in the 1840s, when city leaders envisioned the island as an oasis of culture and learning. Today, the island's impressive neoclassical buildings host five grand museums. The Altus Museum houses antiquities. Behind that building, though not visible from here, lie more sites. The Pergamum Museum has classical antiquities, including the famous and top-notch Pergamum Altar with its temple and frieze. The Neues Museum, or New Museum, is famous for its Egyptian collection especially the ethereal beauty of the bust of Queen Nefertiti. The Old National Gallery has 19th-century German Romantic and Realist paintings, and the Bod Museum has European and Byzantine art. Taken together, the museums of Museum Island are well worth the better part of a sightseeing day. For 300 years, the island's big central square has flip-flopped between being a military parade ground and a people-friendly park depending on the political tenor of the time. In the Nazi era, Hitler enjoyed giving speeches here, from the top of the museum steps overlooking this square. In fact, he had the square landscaped to fit his symmetrical tastes and propaganda needs. I thought those shrubs looked kind of fascist. In 1999, the Lustgarten was made into a park. You can read the full history posted in the corner opposite the church. On a sunny day, this park is packed with relaxing locals, and it's one of Berlin's most enjoyable public spaces. Now turn your attention to the huge church. The Berlin Cathedral, or Berliner Dome, is only a century old, built during the reign of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Wilhelm was that jingoistic emperor in the spike helmet that led Europe into World War I. He considered himself not merely a king, but a kaiser, a caesar, The church's bombastic Wilhelmian architecture is a Protestant assertion of strength. It seems to proclaim, a mighty fortress is our God, and he speaks German. The years of Kaiser Wilhelm's rule, from 1888 to 1918, were a busy age of building. Germany had recently been united in 1871, and the emperor wanted to give his capital stature and legitimacy. Wilhelm's buildings are over-the-top statements, neoclassical, neo-baroque, and neo-renaissance, with rippling stucco and gold-tiled mosaics. This cathedral, while Protestant, is as ornate as if it were Catholic. With the emperor's lead, this boisterous style came into vogue, and anyone who wanted to be associated with the royal class built this way as well. By the way, another example of Wilhelmian architecture in Berlin is the Reichstag, 
where we started this tour. The church is at its most impressive from the outside, but if you pay the pricey admission to go in, you'll see the great reformers, Luther, Calvin, and company, standing around the brilliantly restored dome like stern saints guarding their theology. King Frederick I rests in an ornate tomb, and you can climb the dome for great views. It's time to move on. We'll be leaving the heart of the 19th century empire and entering a district that thrived under a 20th century empire, the Soviet communist regime. Continue down Unter den Linden. Passing the church, you leave Museum Island, crossing another bridge over the river. Pause on the bridge for a second. With the reunification of Berlin, the Spree River has become people-friendly and welcoming. A park-like trail leads from the Berlin Cathedral to the Hauptbahnhof. Along it, you'd find impromptu beachside beer gardens with imported sand, barbecues in pocket parks, and lots of locals walking their dogs, taking a lazy bike ride, or jogging. Spree River boat tours depart from near here. You may notice, don't drop anchor signs. Believe it or not, there are still unexploded World War II bombs around town, and many are in this river. Every month, several bombs are found at construction sites. Local guides explain that the bomb's triggers were set for the hard ground of Scotland testing grounds. But Berlin sits on soft soil. Ah, yes. Berlin means swamp, right? Hey, I'm paying attention. Das ist sehr gut, Fräulein. Because the soil is so soft, an estimated one in every ten bombs dropped didn't explode. Finally, on the riverbank opposite the cathedral, notice the low-profile entrance to the DDR Museum. DDR stands for Deutsche Demokratische Republik. It's what we in America would call the GDR, or German Democratic Republic, the former country known as East Germany. We won't enter the museum, though it is worthwhile. Instead, let's keep going while we talk about the DDR and life under communist rule. From the bridge, continue walking straight toward the TV tower, down the big boulevard. At this point, the street changes its name to Karl Liebknechtstrasse. The first stop is just past the bridge, at the Radisson Hotel. Karl Liebknechtstrasse, Life in the Former East Germany A good introduction to communist Berlin is a capitalist site, the Radisson Hotel. Step into the lobby. Psst, Rick, tuck in your shirt. If we pretend we're guests, we can walk right past the guards. Good idea. I I mean, good idea. I'm cool, I'm cool, okay. Stepping inside, you see it's both a hotel and a shopping center, with a huge aquarium in the center. Whoa, look at that elevator. Wow, it goes right through the center of a deep-sea world. Shh, Rick, keep it down. They're staring at us. You can see it from here in the lobby. But the best view is over here from the left corner as you enter. Rick, over here. My goodness, look at that thing. It's a huge glass cylinder rising high above the central bar. Well, it sure seems that here, right in the center of the old communist city, capitalism has settled in with a spirited vengeance. Let's start making our way back to the street. Good idea. Schnell, schnell. I think they're on to us. Oh, yeah. We made it. that, That was exciting. 
Okay, now that we're back outside on the street, notice that it's no longer called Unter den Linden Boulevard. It's now Karl Liebknechtstrasse. It's named after one of the founders of Germany's Communist Party, a martyr to the Marxist cause. It got its name when the communist regime took over East Germany after World War II. At this point, let's cross Karl Liebknechtstrasse. Uh, that would be jaywalking. Hey, we already crashed the Radisson. And I want to point out some statues in the park on the other side of the street. Okay, sounds good, but I'm heading over to the crosswalk. Well, whatever you do, be careful. Cross the street. Once on the other side, keep going straight into the park and through the trees. In the park straight ahead, look for two big statues. They're of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Recall that both Marx and Engels studied here in Berlin at Humboldt University in the early 1800s, though they didn't meet until later. They went on to co-author the landmark Communist Manifesto, which ends with the famous closing line, Workers of the World, Unite. The statues don't look particularly fierce. Locals have nicknamed these two grandfatherly-looking guys the Old Pensioners. Surrounding them are stainless steel monoliths with evocative photos illustrating the struggles of workers all around the world. The Communist Manifesto came out in 1848, and over the next decades, their ideas proved enormously influential. And these ideas caught on with a Russian. His name was Vladimir Lenin. In 1917, Lenin led the Bolshevik Revolution that toppled the Russian Tsar and established the Soviet Union. Their motto? Workers Workers of of the the world, world, unite! unite. Three decades later, Lenin's successor, Joseph Stalin, sent the Red Army into Germany to defeat Hitler and the Nazis. After the war, they stayed. They occupied the eastern half of Germany and established a communist state, East Germany, or the DDR. Now we'll continue along our walk. But rather than returning to the street... It's nicer to stroll through the park. So, set your eyes on the TV tower and start strolling east through the park, walking parallel to Karl Liebknechtstrasse. Start walking toward that TV tower while Rick tells us more about the DDR. Okay, here's a DDR-era joke. East Germany had 39 newspapers, four radio stations, two TV channels, and one opinion. (laughs) Boy, those wacky communists, always good for a laugh. Well, in fact, life under communist rule was grim. What Marx and Engels had proposed so idealistically just didn't translate well to a communist-controlled empire. From 1949 to 1990, East Germans had it tougher than their cousins in West Germany. They were spied on by their own leaders, the Stasi security force. The economy dragged. The best goods were made in the West, so tantalizingly close. They were smuggled in and sold on the black market. For a car, you couldn't drive a nice Western-made VW. It had to be a cheap knockoff, like the communist-made Trabant. Kids learned Russian in school to better trade with their distant overlords. Movies and TV shows were more about propaganda lessons than entertainment. Informants seemed to be everywhere, so friends would gather in parks like this to quietly grumble about their government. Initially, East Berliners fled by the thousands. Once the wall went up in 1961, people were stuck, and resistance seemed futile. 
But as we all know, the wall came down. It wasn't so much pressure from the West as the obvious internal failings with the Soviet system. The rest of the world was rapidly globalizing. Isolation was no longer an option. Meanwhile, in Moscow, the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev was warming to the West. He declared that he would no longer employ force to keep Eastern European satellite states like East Germany under Soviet rule. By 1989, it was clear that change was in the air. Hungary had already opened its borders to the West that summer and made it impossible for East German authorities to keep their people in. A series of anti-regime protests had swept the nearby East German city of Leipzig just a few weeks earlier, attracting hundreds of thousands of supporters. But the communist regime wouldn't budge. On October 7, 1989, the 40th anniversary of the official creation of the DDR, East German Premier Erich Honecker declared, The wall will be standing in 50 and even in 100 years. He was only off by 99 years and 11 months. On the 4th of November, East Berliners held a rally near here with half a million protesters. They chanted, Wir wollen raus. We want out. Wir wollen raus. It persuaded the East German Politburo to begin a gradual process of relaxing travel restrictions. At first, the DDR's intention was to only slightly crack the door open to the West. But momentum quickly built, and the push for freedom became unstoppable. Finally, late on the evening of November 9, 1989, a guard at the wall simply opened the gates. Easterners flooded into the West, embracing their long-separated cousins, unable to believe their good fortune. Once open, the wall could never be closed again. Soon you'll reach the Marian Church. Its prominent steeple is straight ahead. The Marian Church and the TV Tower The Marian Church dates from 1270. Under communist rule, religion was frowned upon as the state was officially atheist. East Berliners could still worship here, but being openly Christian was never a good career move. From the church, continue walking east down Karl Liebknechtstrasse. We'll be crossing some train tracks on our way to our final stop, Alexanderplatz. As you walk, let Rick tell you all... Yes, yes, yes. As we walk, I'll keep on talking. Just try to stop me. The communist regime is long gone, but it left an enduring legacy. One feature is the 1,200-foot-tall TV tower we're passing by right now. This tower was built in 1969 to celebrate the 20th anniversary of communist East Germany. The tower was meant to show the power of the atheistic state at the very time when DDR leaders were having the crosses removed from the country's church domes and spires. But it turned out that when the sun hit the tower, the reflected light created a huge cross on the mirrored ball. Cynics called it God's Revenge. It had another nickname. Because of its shape, East Berliners dubbed their tower the Tele Asparagus. They also joked that if it fell over, they'd have an elevator to freedom in the West. Those wacky Aussies. For a fee, you can go up the tower for a fine view and lunch at the revolving restaurant. From the top, you can look out at the flat, red-roofed sprawl of Berlin and peek inside the city's many courtyards called Hofe. The tower's retro-looking interior is quite trendy these days, so it can be crowded. Keep walking from the tower to the railway bridge up ahead. 
As you walk, have a listen to this short snippet of music. Lisa, see if you can recognize it. All right. Here goes. It's the German national anthem. Genau, mein Freund. The anthem has gone through some interesting changes in the last century. It first got popular during World War I. In the 1920s, it was adopted as the national anthem, along with the colors of the national flag, black, red, and gold. When Hitler took power, he loved hearing the powerful words of the opening verse. Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles, über alles in der Welt. The words proclaimed, Germany, Germany, above all, above all the world. After Hitler's defeat, no one wanted to hear those Nazi-tinged sentiments anymore. So they switched the official anthem to just the third verse. Eine Kaid und Recht und Freiheit für das deutsche Vaterland. Those lyrics celebrated unity, justice, and freedom. Meanwhile, the country was divided, and East Germany had its own national anthem. Working for our Russian masters, we're the proletariat. Nice try, comrade, but I don't think so. Then in 1990 came Unity, and they all sang the same song once again. The anthem uses only that third verse, the one that starts with the word Einigkeit, Unity. A united Germany proudly sings the anthem that ends with the words Bloom, you German fatherland. Blue im Glanza, dieses Glückes, deutsches Vaterland. By now, you should be near the big railway overpass. Walk under the train bridge and keep going for a long half block. You'll soon be passing alongside a mall called Galleria Kaufhof. Germany may have been officially united in 1990, but the transition was not easy. As we learned after the wall fell, the western half had to subsidize the east, and resentments lingered for years. But as the two economies approached equilibrium, things have greatly smoothed out. For the younger generation, that division is ancient history. Now it's mostly American tourists who buy the DDR flags, the Red Army paraphernalia, and the so-called authentic pieces of the wall. If you want to see a surviving stretch of the Berlin Wall, there's one along Bernauerstrasse, about a mile north of here. But most of the wall is long gone. The city government has been eager to charge forward with little nostalgia for anything that was associated with the East. They've torn down old buildings and made the city a constant construction zone. 
Our final stop gives a good glimpse at the energy of today's Berlin. Just past the Galleria Kaufhof, turn right. Turning right puts you onto a broad pedestrian street. Follow that street through a low tunnel. It leads into a big square surrounded by modern buildings. The blue U-Bahn station signs announce you've arrived at Alexanderplatz. Alexanderplatz. This is a perfect place to end this walk, because Alexanderplatz encompasses so much of the history we've seen along the way. Alexanderplatz was built in 1805 during the Prussian Golden Age. In the Industrial Age, it became a transportation hub. In the roaring 1920s, it was a center of cabaret nightlife to rival Friedrichstrasse. Under the DDR, it was transformed into a commercial center. It was the pride and joy of East Berlin shoppers. The Kaufhof department store, now Galleria Kaufhof, was the ultimate shopping mecca for communist Easterners. In 1989, Alexanderplatz was where East Berliners gathered in huge demonstrations to demand their freedom. Today, the square is a mix of old and new. From the 1920s, two retro-functionalist buildings survive. The once-futuristic World Time Clock, installed in 1969, is a nostalgic favorite and remains a popular meeting point. You may see dueling human hot dog stands. These hot dog hawkers wear ingenious harnesses that let them walk around while they cook and sell tasty, cheap German sausages on the fly. Alexanderplatz is a popular landmark. Locals call it Alexplatz. There's a major U-Bahn S-Bahn station right here, ready to take you to your next destination in Berlin. But for now, enjoy the Berlin of today. It's a major metropolis of three million plugged-in movers and shakers. And it's also a people place. End your walk by finding a place to sit. Enjoy a coffee. Or a hot dog. Or a shankel. And think back on all we've seen. From the Reichstag to the Brandenburg Gate to the sobering sights of World War II and the Cold War. We strolled down Unter den Linden and saw the neoclassical monuments of Berlin's glory days. We learned about life under the DDR and the sometimes difficult transition into the 21st century. And we've celebrated how the nation and the city are reunited once again. Which brings us to the vibrant atmosphere of today's Berlin. Take a moment to people watch right here on Alexanderplatz. It's a great scene. Berlin, the united capital of a booming Germany. We hope you've enjoyed our walk through Berlin. Thanks to Jean Openshaw, the co-author of this tour. If you're doing more sightseeing in Germany, we have similar audio tours for Munich and the Romantic Rhine River. This tour was excerpted from the Rick Steves Germany guidebook. For more details on eating, sleeping, and sightseeing in Berlin, refer to the most recent edition of that guidebook. For more free audio tours and podcasts, and for information about our guidebooks, TV shows, bus tours, and travel gear, visit our website at ricksteves.com. This tour was produced by Cedar House Audio Productions. Thanks. Auf Wiedersehen. And goodbye for now.